one thing that to me is always fascinating and students uh, don't get it when they first come to my classes on the Civil War, say, and it took me a long time to get it too, but part of what Lincoln was so passionate about uh, and part of the reason I paid such attention to the maps that attempted to profile slavery is that the South was an enormously diverse place. And so within the Gulf states that seceded, in certain states, I think of Georgia and also Louisiana, there was a deep, deep movement against secession, even on the part of slaveholders who had different arguments. But one of the chief ones was, we are far safer if we think we want to protect slavery. We are far safer in the Union than outside of the Union. Welcome to Deep Dive with me, Sean Fettig. I'm a political scientist, and I'm interested in trust, how our governments and politicians can gain our trust and how they lose it, but also how our personal stories can build trust and bind us together. So this space is dedicated to diving deeper into issues that are interesting, at least to me and hopefully to you, and that maybe we aren't always sure how to talk about. This episode is one of two episodes focusing on secession, the concept of one region divorcing from another. And I do this because we've been hearing so much talk about secession movements in America, from our politicians, from the media, even around our dinner tables, that it it feels palpable, possible, maybe even desirable. And it makes me wonder, could states secede? How would they even do that? And if they tried, would it lead to another version of a civil war? In this episode, I'm looking backwards, hoping to understand what was happening in the 1850s and 1860s in America that can maybe inform the motivation for and potential success of secession movements in the United States today, which is the focus of next week's episode. So today I'm talking with Dr. Susan Shulton, a historian and professor at the University of Denver. Dr. Shulton is an expert on the Civil War and the secession that precipitated that war. She's written three books, all of which examine maps and geography and what they can tell us about our political and social development as a country. One of those books, A History of America in 100 Maps, is particularly relevant to our discussion today. Our conversation is wide-ranging, including some historical context, but also discussion of division in America today, and maybe how we can examine those divisions through a lens that isn't simply rooted in liberalism versus conservatism, or Republican versus Democrat. You'll notice as the conversation progresses that I try to find different ways to draw parallels and identify patterns from the past to help explain, maybe even predict, the present and the future. It's what we do. Maybe it's what we need. History as a security blanket, that all will be well, the union will hold. But each time, Dr. Shulton reminds me of the limits in doing that. But is it futile, asking the question, what can we learn from secession in the 1860s, and how can it help us today? Let's do a deep dive. Dr. Shelton, thank you so much for being here. So let's establish a baseline. What is secession? Uh, In the American context, the example that always immediately jumps to mind is the movement of several deep Southern states in the winter of 1860 and 1861 to declare themselves out of the Union. And so while the term, of course, encompasses uh, a much wider historical phenomenon in the context of the United States, it's almost always used to refer to the precipitating event of the American Civil War. So when the Southern states seceded in 1860, there was no known process for secession. So states passed their own articles of secession, and then 
for all intents and purposes, considered themselves to have seceded from the Union. And I suppose given the jarring impact secession had in 1860, I would have assumed we would have settled this question, that we would have established some process for secession um, or clarified its impossibility uh, or its incompatibility with, you know, a more perfect union. And I guess my question then is, what is our current contemporary known process for secession? Yeah, that's a great, it's a great question. In, in 1860, it was indeed unprecedented. And as you said, it was a series of different processes in each individual state. Uh, some within a kind of secession convention, uh, a vote of some kind of representative nature. The war itself uh, was a kind of definitive rejection of that as a possible pathway. In other words, the victory of the Union and the defeat of the Confederacy was implicitly a rejection that secession was possible. However, Across the 20th century, and even in the last year or two, we've seen movements of counties, for instance, looking to secede from one state and join another. And then there's the phenomenon of Texas every few years raising the specter of seceding, uh, becoming its own independent nation. So we, we continue to hear that as language that primarily is used to voice uh, a sense that certain people's votes don't count or their voices don't count. We saw that last year in Eastern Oregon, where several counties voted in a non-binding way to join Idaho. And here in Colorado, a few years ago, Weld County um, experimented with voting both to remove itself from Colorado and to join Wyoming. So these things pop up um, primarily in a political context, right, with when dissatisfaction with representation sort of becomes no longer tolerable. So there are active secession movements in all 50 states. And what I'm hoping we can do here is approach this discussion with two aims, uh, uh, both to understand what happened in the 1850s and 1860s that culminated in the secession of the southern states, but also to use that environment in the United States in the 1850s and 1860s as a lens through which we might then be able to identify some similarities or differences in some of the tension we're experiencing today in the United States that uh, seems to be correlating with increased chatter about a new secessionist movement. And, and I'm wondering if in 1860, the elements were perfect or, or ripe for secession because of the convergence of two critical things, you know, geography being one and the issue of slavery being another. And, and it makes me curious about this idea that we've become less geographically separated on ideology in such a way that you could easily identify, um, you know, a shared position on such a controversial and divisive issue as slavery was. But that also coincides with where a huge swath of the country kind of resides that would allow for like a clean cut in the country that could easily separate one community from another. You, You know, Montana might ideologically align with Texas, but geographically, they're separated. And, and the reverse of that is geographically, Idaho and Washington are our are, are neighbors, but ideological strangers. And I'm, I'm wondering if that lack of a clear convergence on geography and ideology is actually a mitigating factor on successful secession. That is such a great observation. I really appreciate that um, because it's forcing me to think a little bit differently. One thing that to me is always fascinating and students uh, don't get it when they first come to my classes on 
the Civil War say, and it took me a long time to get it too, but part of what Lincoln was so passionate about, uh, and part of the reason I paid such attention to the maps that attempted to profile slavery, is that the South was an enormously diverse place. And so within the Gulf states that seceded, in certain states, I think of Georgia and also Louisiana, there was a deep, deep movement against secession. Uh, even on the part of slaveholders who had different arguments, but one of the chief one, ones was we are far safer if we think we want to protect slavery. We are far safer in the Union than outside of the Union. So there were deep anti-secession movements among slaveholders in the Gulf states. And then beyond that, as you know, once you begin to move out of the Deep South, you see tremendous variation. So during the Civil War, Eastern Tennessee, Western North Carolina, Northern Alabama, parts of Missouri were extremely um, anti-Confederate and fought hard to resist the Confederacy and paid dearly for it, by the way. And Lincoln was aware of that, that there was there were loyal pockets. He overestimated how important those would be in keeping the Union together. But he did see that diversity. And you're referencing exactly the same thing today, maybe in a much more complicated way, but that it's not that so much unifies us, but what divides us is so, as you put it, kind of widely ranging and not geographically concentrated, mm -hmm. that that may be, as you put it, a mitigating factor. That's really something that's worth reflecting on, I think. And perhaps the internet has, has obscured that for us because, of course, the great flaw of the internet is that you find exactly what you're looking for. Uh, and there's a kind of tremendous sense that, you know, you're being confirmed all the time in your beliefs, in your news, in your outlooks, uh, in your sense of the world. And yet, as you put it, even within states, we have tremendous diversity. That's certainly the case here in Colorado. So in your research and, and, and some of your lectures, you've drawn attention to the patterns of state secession in the winter of 1860 and also the demographics of slaveholding. And if we fast forward then, I guess I'm wondering if any patterns stand out to you now that might help us to understand the motivation to pursue secession today. In the 1850s and 1860s, it you know was the issue of slavery and and who the slaveholders were and and where they were. Today, there's a narrative that the Republican Party is increasingly becoming the party of white folks, with only about 15 percent of their share of the 2020 vote coming from voters of color, whereas the Democratic Party is uh, becoming the home of non-white folks. About 39% of their 2020 vote share was voters of color. And I guess I'm wondering if, to you, there's a there there, uh, you know, something that's interesting to you in this. Yes, and the parties, uh, boy, the parties, <laughs> that's such a, a, a chicken-egg issue in or problem in American history. In other words, to what extent do parties sort of galvanize and attract and coalesce people, and to what extent do they express those divisions. Right. The Democratic Party in 1860 was so divided, as you know, Sean, that it couldn't support the same candidate for president. So they split along regional lines. Today, I, I hear you about the racial polarization that we see in parties. I'm a little reluctant to overgeneralize in part because I keep seeing in my own life examples of the Republican Party making pretty interesting inroads into primarily the Latino population. Mm -hmm. 
I don't want to overstate that. And I've checked myself by looking up to see if my own anecdotal experiences is anything more than that. And it might not be. The research I did earlier this morning to prepare for our interview indicated that, yes, uh, there is a sizable minority of the Latino population that is attracted to the Republican Party, but that number hasn't necessarily changed over the last few elections. I don't know um, how far to push what you're getting at. In other words, this, uh, this future in which the parties reflect the racial divide in America. Now, that was certainly the case after the Civil War. <laughs> in other words, Democrats emerged from the Civil War with essentially a lock on one party rule in the South for well into the mid 20th century. And that the African-American population was uniformly Republican until the 1930s. So we've seen some of that kind of clustering, but I guess where I'm a little less confident is thinking about what that means for the future in a predictive way. I think what I'm trying to do here is draw some similarity between then and now uh, on this idea that, you know, that the parties today, rather than reflecting constituents, are crafting a constituency. And it seems as if, you know, the, the primary political difference between the two, Democrat and Republican, is in the realm of, uh, you know, the politics of identity. And here I'm really talking about things like race, sex, gender, uh, sexual orientation which is in turn becoming the dominating predictor of, you know, how we vote and what our ideology is. And mm-hmm. as we increasingly pursue neighborhoods and communities that reflect our values, um, while states themselves may be ideologically diverse across the entirety of the state, uh, although not uniformly true, we can almost predict by zip code how people vote. And, and so I wonder if that blurring of identity and political ideology is making it easier to create new geographic boundaries that could then, you know, pressure secession. Or at least it removes a barrier, you know, this, you know, disparate and scattered location of people with shared values and ideology. Or maybe put it another way, you know, as we increasingly move uh, to and pack ourselves into places that share our values, are we creating a geographic border that could make secession more palatable? It's a bit of the reverse argument I was making a couple of questions ago, but is it making sense? I think so. Let me see if I can restate, because um, I, I want to make sure I'm, I'm grasping it. That the parties, and if you want to stick with the Republican Party, that they're, they're not offering necessarily a political ideology, let's say small government or strong foreign policy, as much as they're offering a kind of identification with what used to be called the politics of resentment. Am I getting closer? Yeah, exactly. I mean, you certainly certainly hear a lot about that, right? In other words, that the parties are no longer a clear agenda or platform of action items and more an attitude, a a kind of um, cultural or spiritual home. Um, I mean, I was just reading this morning about an editorial about how the Democrats seem to be losing a certain constituency that we saw in, for instance, Glenn Youngkin in Virginia just a few months ago, who who successfully sort of capitalized on not just less educated folks that the Republican Party had traditionally captured uh, since Trump, but also increasingly educated whites who felt resentful about 
let's say, changing opportunities for their kids or things going on in the curriculum that they weren't happy with. And that is less an agenda because Youngkin was very strongly supportive of investing in education, but it was more kind of an attitude about what happens in schools. So I I know I'm making your question a little bit muddy, but it does seem that we're we're in a, a moment where political identification is is deeply driven by identity, as you put it, and also, for lack of a better word, kind of emotional responses. Right. And to put this in the context of the Civil War, we know that was about slavery, and it was later recast as predominantly a states' rights issue. And what I find interesting about this, as it relates to how we approach the difference here from a political perspective, If we conceptualize something as about slavery versus conceptualizing it as states' rights, is the difference between addressing it as an emotional and moral difference between the North and South, and instead addressing it as an institutional battle between the two. And I wonder if this reorients the entire debate then, because approaching the Civil War as being about institutional differences between two parties um, related to the structure of federalism is less threatening if if that institutional lens evokes something different mm-hmm. and um, less dangerous for the union. Yeah. And I guess the first thing I want to catch myself is you couldn't have had a more emotional moment in party identification than the period from 1856 to 1865. You know, in 1856, uh, <laughs> Preston Brooks, a congressman from South Carolina, beat Charles Sumner, an anti-slavery Northern Republican to within an inch of his life on the floor of the Senate. Mm -hmm. And he was absolutely lauded for that by Southerners. So emotionally, it was an absolute powder keg. And many historians have actually argued that what led to the Civil War, how we get from sectional crisis to Civil War, really was emotion. Uh, I don't want to give too much of that because it does seem to me that the breaking point was states' rights over, as you put it, slavery, over slavery time and time again. There's no other state issue, state right issue that they were arguing about. So emotion has always been with us in politics. It's, it would be foolish for me to pretend otherwise. But what does it mean when, um, when emotion, as you put it, seems to me eclipsing other issues? Or when a single issue can sort of, I guess, be the focal point and we see this in our news, right? What do we what do we end up clicking on? Why did I click on that story this morning in the Times? Well, I was super interested in, you know, how the Democrats had failed to sell themselves in Virginia. That was interesting to me, even though it may not be a the most consequential issue. And I, I hear this from colleagues, particularly in the law, who feel as though the things we're paying attention to are things like the insurrection of January 6th. When the thing we should be paying attention to is the state level, local level, very, very determined effort to disfranchise voters and redraw uh, precincts. That's less sexy, right? It's it's can be kind of boring because it doesn't always affect us, you know, uh, well-heeled white folks. But it will, right? That's going to be far more consequential than the optics that had us all clutching our pearls on January 6th which I admit was terrifying. I was terrified. But that as an event was not the main story. 
but it's emotional. And so it captures our attention. Sometimes we seem to have our eye on the wrong ball. That does not bode well for lessons learned, though. Then it helps us to imagine what we might or might not do differently in future. I remember in the late 90s and early 2000s, and this conversation may have been happening for a time immemorial before that, but you know, wherein political scientists, legal scholars, constitutional scholars, academics were saying you know, that specific to the parties, the Democratic Party's lack of focus and emphasis on local parties is dangerous for the two-party system in the United States, and, and that the Republican Party's focus on that will pay off, in, in, in that it'll build a ladder into an enduring dominant presence for the party, not only at the local level, but also at the federal level, in such a way that it would dwarf the you know, Democratic Party. And I don't know how much stock I gave to what that ultimately meant at the time, but in retrospect, if someone were to provide to me tangible evidence today, real research that suggests that without doing this now, um, focusing on state-level politics, for example, I would pay more attention than I did 20 years ago. You know, it was seen as alarmist then. So then in the context of the late 1850s and 1860s, secession, the Civil War, I'm wondering if, in some sense, have we learned from that, that you know, such that we're protected from reoccurrence, or have we built enough of a firewall around ourselves and our institutions, our case law, et cetera, to stave off something like that happening again? <laughs> Oh boy, that's a that's a good question. Um, as to whether we've learned, I think I have to plead some ignorance because I am not myself deeply engaged with politics on the local level. I feel I'm a pretty good citizen and I vote, but I I make no claim to being an activist. I do sometimes feel as though, and I think this is a little bit colored by the fact that I work with college students but that questions that are most salient to them are sometimes oriented primarily around identity as opposed to deeper structural questions about inequality. I don't want to overstate that because we all saw that Bernie Sanders and the questions he was raising were deeply, deeply resonating right, with younger voters. So I want to, I want to limit my generalization, but Sometimes what gets students talking are the things that, as you kind of put it, when you were getting your political awakening a few decades ago, that kind of intersected with their own emergence as people, as adults, as fitting out how they figuring out how they fit into this larger spectrum um, of, of political identity. As to whether we've learned from the 1860s, it's um that's a tough one. And I get that question a lot, I think, after. January 6th and Trump, I, I got a lot of what I would term a little bit of deliberately provocative calls that were oriented around, you know, is this the beginning of a new civil war? Are the 1850s the equivalent of the 2020s? And I find those to be difficult to answer. The country has had lots and lots of periods of deep, deep polarization. We're not unique in that. I don't think we're in uncharted terrain. One thing I try to point out to people, and I know this sounds Pollyanna, and so I, I will say it advisedly, but I do think that we are in a, a situation where we're finally paying attention to the kind of political violence and disfranchisement that has been endemic to certain communities all through American history. Mm-hmm. In other words, political violence has always been with us. Disfranchisement has always been with us. I think what's getting people to 
sit up and take notice, as you put it, is that now it potentially affects some of us. Uh, and that sounds extremely cynical of me. I've, I've had friends really balk when I say that to them, almost as though I'm saying it's no big deal what's been happening. And that's not what I'm saying at all. But I do think it's, it's something that we're starting to reckon with is that these kinds of deep, deep institutional structures of disfranchisement and violence, whether overt or implicit violence, have always been in, active in this country. So the question of whether we're learning anything, <laughs> boy, that's, <laughs> that's a tough one. Do I see a civil war emerging? I don't think so, but I've also never successfully called an election either. <laughs> so I'm not sure I'm the voice here. This is something I've been thinking about lately. It's not that political violence is something new to America. Uh, you know, it has been something we have struggled with in different capacities throughout our history. And it is an interesting question as to why we're paying attention now. Um, you know, is it because it's more acute or more violent? Or is it altogether something new? Because we've had a relative period of political stability for so long that we have a generation of folks, and I would consider myself to be among them, who have never experienced this style of violence or the analysis of what it means for the country, for our democracy. Mm -hmm. But my parents lived through the 60s, which was turbulent, and my grandparents lived through the Depression and then World War II, both turbulent times. And in each of those times, there was question of the stability of American government uh, and its ability to shepherd the country through that. And so I struggle with how much of this is because we're paying attention, and when you're paying attention, things can appear more acute and more present, perhaps threatening. And how much of it is actually something, to, to frame it in the way we talk about it now, in a way that I don't remember us ever talking about it in my lifetime, is you know, how much of this is actually something that's existentially threatening to the union? Do you mean a kind of fraying, a kind of a, a, a genuine question about union? Right, yes. Yes. That's a good point. I think what we heard in the 1930s was a genuine crisis of capitalism not a genuine crisis of national unity or stability, right? In other words, elections occurred, institutions persisted. It was, I think, primarily a question about the integrity of capitalism, which we decided to shore up. In the 1960s, uh, I just finished the winter quarter and I was teaching war on the presidency. And so in the unit on Vietnam, we spent a day looking at the way in which Johnson did or did not manage domestic dissent. Uh, relative to Lincoln, Wilson, and Roosevelt. And the students were genuinely riveted to see footage of the 1968 Democratic Convention when the party tore itself apart. Now there too, uh, you were saying your parents lived through that. I think there was a sense of maybe disintegration uh, uh, among the Democrats, primarily over Vietnam, and deep, deep domestic upheaval, which led first, at first in Vietnam and then in race riots. But whether that was a question of the country being permanently polarized, as you're putting it, I'm not sure, because it was a minority. It was a minority of uh, an allegiance of very well-educated college students and their, their parents, and also uh, the civil rights movement and other movements as well, the emerging feminist movement, for instance. But 
I don't think in the terms we look back at that and see upheaval, but I don't think it was a nation wholly divided. What does feel a little bit unsettling to me is I lived through it. And that's why I'm, I'm always nervous because I've, as a historian, we, we like to wait a long time, or some of us do, um, before we kind of weigh in because history has a way of, of really surprising you. And what I am unsettled about is kind of anecdotally, and I'm sure you've had these experiences too, but um, the depth to which people feel as though they have nothing in common with uh, someone who votes a different way. And that kind of othering, that kind of um, absence of nuance, of absence of kind of civic ties that bind us, that's something that feels sort of threatening to me. Mm-hmm. I say that as someone um, who's from a family with a lot of these divisions that are, they are very difficult. Um, they're very difficult to negotiate. And uh, every family probably, <laughs> well, maybe not every family, I have some families friends who are part of families that they describe as impenetrable bubbles. And I sometimes envy that. I, I do not have that. <laughs> but they are, they are substantive, right? Things do come up. It, it can be painful. But aside from my family, I think what, I, what I'm really disturbed by is the mentality that there's a do or die future for us. I look at gun ownership and rates of gun purchases. And to me, that is extremely unsettling. Mm-hmm. And people sort of sorting themselves. Um, those are things that that give me pause. Let's throw us into your sandbox. I think this is where one of your books is particularly relevant to this discussion. And uh, I'm talking about a history of America and a hundred maps. Um, I'm a cardophile, and so first, <laughs> I just want to say that this book brings me uh, unending joy. It, it's so chock full of interesting information and history that I struggle to really summarize it. But I will say this, regardless of your interest, this book has something for you. And germane to the topic at hand and the discussion we're having, there are some maps that you highlight in your book that help to not necessarily explain the Civil War, but help us to think about that time and those hostilities in interesting ways. And it makes me wonder if you could point to maps that outline the most challenging divisions in American society today that, in retrospect, might help us to understand a contemporary secession movement. What would you be looking for? That's a really good question. I've thought a little bit about this. One of the historic maps that I became most fascinated by is one that I ended up including in the map from the 1850s. And it's a map that's designed for potential German immigrants to the United States. There was a period of massive German immigration, not as large as Irish in the 1840s and 50s, but right behind it. And the Germans who were fleeing the failed revolutions of 1848 were actively searching for places to emigrate. And the United States was one of the chief homes. And this map is in German. It's interesting in part because it is showing German prospective immigrants where they might find opportunity in the United States. And the reason I use it when I teach the Civil War is it Ostensibly, it doesn't say anything about slavery. The word is never mentioned on the map. What it shows is uh, railroads, urban centers, canals, and ports. Those are the chief markers on the map. And you can look at that map and see a few things. Students point out that the northern states, the northeastern states, have really successfully, by the 1850s, brought what we now call the Midwest into their orbit. 
So what you might call the Great Lakes states, places like Ohio and the emergence of Wisconsin, Minnesota territory, those places are now firmly connected, not along the Mississippi River or the Ohio with New Orleans, but through artificial canals and railroads to Boston, New York, and Philadelphia. In other words, the Northeastern states have, have effectively replicated themselves moving west along the same latitude. And as a result, that area is really tightly bound together. By contrast, there are much fewer ways to transport yourself from north to south or ways to transport yourself within the south. So I go into such detail about this map because it purports to show one thing, which is essentially economic opportunity. But what it shows us is a country with a certain series of trends and one trajectory. In other words, the north, the northern states are moving toward industrialization. And the southern states are not doing that, despite the enormous profits of slavery. And on top of that, and because of that, they are not inviting to immigrants. Those population trends, the fact that all of those German immigrants will go to northern destinations except for a few places in Texas, East Texas, gives us some window into the divisions that lead to the Civil War. They were We were talking about two different societies. I don't want to draw that line too brightly because there's a lot of overlap between the two regions. They remain both Christian. Uh, <laughs> there was a uniform um, level of prejudice, right, around African-Americans in their place. But those were two different societies. If you think about what we might map today, that would give us some insight. I think GIS specialists, political scientists have done much better work on this than what I'm about to say. But you could think about religious identification. And that's not the be all and the end all, but there are different religious orientations. In the same way that there were different religious orientations that began to split the union in the 1840s and 50s. Another one, and I'm sure someone's done this, so I don't claim any originality, but is there a way to identify how and where people get their news? And I say this not to disparage certain news outlets over the others, because they're all flawed. They're all subject to error and bias. But what we read and hear is that part of what's so disturbing when you think about uh, the way in which we've been living in two different worlds during the pandemic, around the pandemic, is that there are such distinct sources of news. And I wonder if a map that was able to get at how people learn about the world around them, is that something that's helpful? I also wonder about schooling, and I don't even mean advanced education, but one thing I noticed is that during the pandemic, attendance at religious schools soared. So a lot of schools that were really on the ropes, Catholic schools especially, experienced tremendous enrollment. And I wonder if people opting out of the public schools, which have problems, like two boys in the public schools, um, but people opting out is yet another way to kind of self-sort. So those are the kind of things, I guess, questions or, or data around sorting, Sean, that I think might be useful. I'm curious if you have some of your own. I do have some thoughts. Yeah, I'm just not sure how defined they are. Um, but I do think this line of discussion is super interesting. And I know I keep coming back to this idea that the element of geography seems almost critically important to the potential for successful secession. And it's that that informs my idea of how a map might help us here. But perhaps nebulously, 
I could imagine there are a number of counties in Idaho, Wyoming, South Carolina, Alabama that are ideologically aligned, but they're not near each other. And you know, this this geography that I'm arguing is such an important element of secession that it makes me wonder about things that are not at all regional, but still have an outsized impact on how a particular group of people feels about their government or about their neighbors or about their politics, etc. And how does it create a geographically based sense of community? Here we can imagine something like Fox News, which is, for all intents and purposes, primarily consumed by conservatives. This is nationally produced and ingested by a national audience. It's not regional news. But when you measure that influence against this critical element of geography, you know, assuming you buy this argument I'm making about it, to secession, then I wonder if something with such a national reach plays less of a role than that of something that can tap into a more regional or local cleavage. Like, what does it matter if Fox News can whip up a shared sentiment across the country if it's not actually uh, coalescing a regionally-based constituency around a regional issue that could then be leveraged in a secession movement? Or am I just giving too much weight to geography? You know, maybe, maybe I'm missing something about this electorate that might be binding them together in different ways. I'm thinking, um, and I, of course, we all try to extract patterns from, you know, the limited evidence we're consuming. Right. There's something that sort of struck me this quarter. I was supervising a senior thesis this year by uh, one of my students who, he was extremely interested in the Scopes trial. And he had studied it a little bit with me in American intellectual and cultural history because we had looked at the emergence of fundamentalism right after the turn of the century of the 20th century. And he wanted to know, well, what was going on before the Scopes trial? In other words, the Scopes trial occurs um, when John Scopes is accused of violating the Butler Act and teaching evolution in uh, a classroom in Tennessee. And the trial attracts national attention. It's a spectacle. That's actually the word that's used. Um, we have William Jennings Bryan and Clarence Darrow, these huge personalities. And it becomes something that we're familiar with today, right, Sean, a kind of cause celeb that it gets to mean something much more than a community trying to police what gets taught in its schools, right? So it's what, what's old is new again. It's, we can definitely relate to the issues that are brought up in the Scopes trial. But one thing my student brought to my attention was the emergence of a fundamentalist faith community in this country, maybe concentrated in the South, but not exclusive to the South. And that really was indifferent and maybe even defining itself against the direction in which it saw the larger uh, culture going. So very much concerned with a growing sense of permissiveness after the First World War, very much the force behind prohibition in this country. And the common narrative that I have noticed as a historian is the Scopes trial sort of defeated the anti-evolution forces and they they kind of went away. But now all the great research that's being done by political scientists and historians on the history of the right, of the evangelical right especially, shows us that we just, we missed it. They just went into a different direction. In other words, they may have decided for a while not to engage with politics or policy, but that doesn't mean that cultural attitude went away and we had the kind of victory of a cosmopolitan, urbane America. And I, I bring this example just because I think that we sometimes, we miss a lot from our perches, don't we? And we've been sort of surprised by the, what we see as this surge of an evangelical culture, for instance. 
but perhaps it's always been there and we've just been a little bit blind to it. And I don't know if that's, you talk about regional sources or regional clusters. And I wonder if a lot of this is right under our nose, but we're so governed by our own sources. I think of my own life. I'm, I don't use any social media, but I consume fairly predictable uh, forms and types of information, right? The New Yorker or the New York Times or my own monographs written by professors who have a certain orientation. And I live in central Denver. <laughs> so I just sometimes am humbled by the degree to which my chosen daily experience really forecloses my ability to see a larger America. And maybe that's what a lot of us are learning all across the spectrum, right? That we all we all get to live in our own bubbles, but we're beginning to see that there are many more of those than we might have once thought. So we actually may be missing something here, or maybe more accurately, I may be missing something, but uh, we, we may be blinded, not just as people living in our own bubbles, but also researchers in pursuit of a specific task to, to see, to explain, to tell us what to expect. And I, I mean, it's human nature, but even more so ingrained in those, in those of us that are researchers, especially folks that are predictive researchers, is to strive to understand and identify every component of a variable, uh, mm-hmm. an environment, a behavior, in as much as we can to offer some sense of what to expect, what comes next, right, right. how to act, or react and, and respond. And I think you're bringing up a point that often gets overlooked, that prognostication has limits that are perhaps often unovercomable, in that we just can't always see everything that we need to see in order to say that something will happen. You know, and, and to some degree, it renders these conversations as you know, thought experiments. And, and it's disconcerting in, in that knowing that means we're accepting that we don't know what we, and perhaps other people, may desperately want to know. Yeah, and this is, uh, you know, the <laughs> cliche of the century, but they say that history has a way of surprising you. Um, and maybe part of it is that, like you said, the brain has limited capacity to take in information. And so we look for patterns that comport, right, with what we already know. I think I'm susceptible to that as well. I think I'm just a little bit more aware of it because as I've told you in my life, and I've had to reckon with people with wildly different visions of the world. And that kind of, it takes away the luxury of being able to generalize it up from your own experience. Because you see people whom you care about who have come to radically different conclusions about the world than you have. And that can be, <laughs> I think it can be frustrating for some of my friends, right? Because I feel so hopelessly muddled at middle age. And it, it's just that I'm trying to, and often failing, but trying to remember that very, very good people can see things in fundamentally different ways. It doesn't excuse it, right? I mean, there are things that I very much care about and I've, I've learned to care about that maybe I wasn't raised to care about. So I do not want to be an apologist for what I see as disconcerting intolerance. But I also, it it forces one to be aware of one's own limits and one's own worldview. I hope that makes some sense. It does, yeah. It's not always helpful though, is it, (laughs) Sean? Do you know what I mean? (laughs) I mean, it's not. And I, I think we can be honest about that. There are things we do know from which we can try to extrapolate. But as you said, 
you know, history can surprise you. And, and, and this is imagining history as future history. Exactly. That's that right. Things can happen that we just don't see right now. And this in turn impacts our ability to definitively say anything, regardless of the model building tools we have at our disposal. So I'm grateful that you say that because our, our tendency is to try to find a definitive explanation. And we often look backwards for those tools when they may not even have been molded yet. Yes. That's what I meant is, is our current moment of history can surprise you. Thank you for that clarification. I teach a lot on Lincoln, as you know, in different forms. So I teach the Civil War and I just finished this course on war and the presidency, which begins with a few weeks on the Civil War. And there's a couple of things that really shock students about Lincoln himself. And some of this has become part of common knowledge. Um, so, for instance, that Lincoln went to fairly extraordinary lengths to protect slavery in order to stop secession. Uh, that his first plan was colonization. In other words, to liberate slaves and then have them voluntarily deport themselves. And his, de- his own deep racial prejudice comes out in a few documents in 1862. And that genuinely upsets students. Um, the fact that the Civil War for him was always about union first and emancipation second. So those things can surprise students. And they're also surprised when they see the degree, the degree to which he was opposed and hated within the North at the time. Mm -hmm. People who thought he was hopelessly radical, a tyrant. So in other words, the the vast range of perspectives on Lincoln at the time can sometimes remind us that the one president who always ranks as the most important and the most beloved and the most moral and the most consequential in American history is also among the most controversial. And I say that just because when I say that history can surprise you, that Lincoln himself has gone through different estimations over time. And my students themselves are conflicted. They're primarily conflicted around the issue of race because they were not taught to see Lincoln in that way, maybe more than I was, because that conversation is much more part of the vernacular than it used to be. But I say that just because uh, we think about Union and we think about Lincoln, right? We think about him as the savior of the Union, but that obscures the contemporary moment and the wildly experimental things he was willing to do in order to maintain his top priority. That complication, I think, is is the most important thing that history can do um, because it forces us to see that there is no kind of moment in the past that we can really look to as being the thing we seek. I mean, every, gosh, Sean, you're a political scientist. You know that every candidate <laughs> evokes Lincoln in some way. There was, a, there was a moment in that 2020 primary, I showed students that every Democrat evoked Lincoln in some fashion. Either that as their favorite leader or someone whose speeches they were reading, it's almost universal. And that was the Democratic Party. So I guess my point is simply that this idea of someone who can unify us, whether an idea or a person is, is maybe a bit of a fantasy and something we project onto the past. I was actually hoping we'd get here, uh, the lens through which we see Lincoln, because this does lead me to a question that might throw you into, you know, uncomfortable territory, but perhaps in the final analysis and, and from a certain perspective, one could argue that a great mistake was made 
on the part of Abraham Lincoln in keeping the Union together. And that's because we examine that era through a, a very particular lens, which you've nicely outlined. And that's, you know, that Lincoln saved the Union and all for the good. But notwithstanding the reality of slavery and the pressure put on the Union, could we have the conversation and examine a counter-narrative in which Lincoln saved the Union and not necessarily for the good, given where we are now? I think that is one of the most profound questions of the 19th century. I really do. And as you you put it, it's, it is uncomfortable for people, in part because, to put it crudely, the winners write history. And so we look back and we take for granted that the preservation of the Union was a, a good, simply a good, a net positive. And we do that in part because there's the moral element that we graft onto it. In other words, the destruction of slavery is impossible to disentangle. What you're asking is, I think, one of the key questions that often we simply don't even touch. Mm-hmm. And some folks on the fringe have touched it <laughs> um, and have asked that question. Would two, would two nations have been, have been so wrong, ha- have been so terrible? One kind of caricature of your position is that when we think about Lincoln, we should really compare him to Bismarck. In other words, someone who forced a nation through bloodshed. Is it something we can justify the lives of 700,000 men? Well, what did those lives mean? And so the question is uncomfortable for us, both because we live in a union and because our national story has come to be one that sees the Civil War as a kind of national redemption. And I, I say that primarily thinking about Lincoln's second inaugural when he essentially says that this is the price that we pay for the sin of slavery. And it's a very, very moving speech. It's also one of the shortest inaugurals in American history, but it is also deeply disturbing because the implication is that this is the price for union. And he links it to freedom, right? That this is, this is not gonna be just any nation, right? But this is gonna be a nation dedicated to a future of greater freedom. And that kind of washes away a lot of the pain and the loss. But when you really ask it in stark terms, one way to put it, you talked about thought experiments. Here's a counterfactual that I always pose to my students when I can. What if George McClellan, the Union general who led some of the initial assaults on the Confederacy when he had the the will to do it, What if McClellan had been much more successful in Virginia in 1862? What if he had wiped out those Confederate forces and captured Richmond? What if the Confederacy had fallen in 1862? A much, much shorter war would have meant a war of reunion where slavery remained intact. And when you pose that to students, and when I pose it to myself, it really forces you to think about the way in which we attribute a moral righteousness to what is actually violence. In other words, we think about the Civil War in certain ways because we know the outcome and we're okay with the outcome. But the outcome might have been different if the Union had been much more successful. That doesn't fully answer your question, so I'd like to hear your thoughts if you have any. But but to your point, we don't often ask, was the outcome worth it? It's almost heretical to do so. You know, another way I've been thinking about this, uh, it, it, perhaps had Lincoln 
abdicated all executive authority in maintaining the Union and allowed the restructuring of the states such that the South seceded. Um, you know, it's not that we'd be living in a world in which maybe slavery petered out. Or maybe or, not. Right, exa- exactly. My, my question is prefaced on the idea that maybe it would have been better, but right. maybe not. Exactly. What we do is attach meaning to outcomes, don't we? In other words, <laughs> we're Americans. <laughs> and this is also kind of overshadowed a little bit or colored by the fact that we're citizens. In other words, this is our own national history. We're not talking about the history of I don't know, Russian unification, right? Or German unification. Mm-hmm. We're talking about our own nation. And so there's a, there's a degree to which this is an emotional question. I find that when I ask the question that you've posed, the smart ass answer or the quick answer is, well, of course the war had to be fought. What kind of immoral or amoral person are you to suggest that the country would have been better off allowing slaveholders to write their own future. But when you, when you show them the contingency of the war and how the war is itself historical, how it unfolds in moments and those moments force decisions, then we realize that just because the Civil War ended slavery doesn't mean that the Civil War was fought to free the slaves, that those are two different things. But it's so intricately bound up with our own sense of national righteousness. It's a fulfillment of meaning, right? As as Lincoln said, we're going to uh, create a more perfect union to put that into the future. It's really hard for us to look at it with any sense of detachment or what if, as you put it. In your opinion, is this question of secession today just a fringe idea that's getting some attention, or is it something that's getting attention because it's a real possibility? I'm not sure, and I don't want to punt, but I'm genuinely not sure. If you had asked me that 20 years ago, I think I would have assumed that the outcome of the Civil War absolutely closed the book, and that might have been my own ignorance. But the Civil War didn't just answer the question of secession as a uh, kind of political strategy, but it absolutely settled the question constitutionally. To put it differently, in the 1850s, and then especially in Lincoln's inaugural, he goes into this extended reflection about how states have sovereignty. And unlike Frederick Douglass, pardon me, Unlike Stephen Douglas and a lot of the prior leaders in the United States, Lincoln made a really novel argument. And that was, we were a union in spirit long before we were a nation in fact. Mm -hmm. And the spirit of the union goes back to the colonies. It goes into the revolution. It was uh, kind of solidified in the Articles of Confederation and confirmed in the Constitution. His point is that states derive their sovereignty from the union, whereas the prevailing idea at the time was that what was called the compact theory, states are the ones that decide to join and also remove themselves from the union. In other words, if the union's not working out, you can decide to withdraw your support, that the states are where sovereignty is located. Lincoln rejects that. 
And he that's why he says in his famous line, secession is anarchy. It's impossible. It doesn't exist. And I know that's one thing that you've been interested in is, is where does secession even live in the Constitution? And the fact is it doesn't, right. which is why he is so important. We often think of him as important because he was a president, but he's also advancing a certain understanding of the Constitution. Not just that, but he's, I think, the most powerful voice aside from the abolitionists, who's saying the Constitution is a meaningless document unless it is informed by the Declaration of Independence, which has a kind of moral underpinning. But the Constitution does not. It is a framework, right? But the picture, as he put it, is the Declaration. So he joins those two things in a really powerful way that hadn't been joined. But in terms of secession, he answers that. And like I said, 20 years ago, I would have thought he answered it you know, Rick Perry notwithstanding. (laughs) But to your point, in the last decade or so, we have seen so much talk, maybe chatter about this, that it's starting to make me wonder if many of my fellow Americans have a different understanding of what the union is uh, or where their loyalties lie. And I don't mean that in a pejorative way. I mean it in a way that maybe I genuinely don't have a sense of whether that question was settled. All right. Fair enough. I have one final question. What's something interesting that you've been reading or watching lately? It doesn't have to be related to this topic. I'll tell you something. I'm actually chairing a book prize committee. It's my last year. And so I get the opportunity to read a lot of history books outside of my own area. And one that I might have read otherwise, um, because it's a scholar I admire at Boulder, But it's a history of camping in the United States. But what she's done that I think is so ingenious, it's on Professor Phoebe Young, is she's defined camping both as the thing that immediately comes to our mind, right? And she has long chapters on John Muir and Knowles and other actors. But she's late in her research, the Occupy movement sort of upended her entire understanding of this. And so she made a really heroic, I think, effort to rethink the whole idea of what does it mean to camp? And so um, she's brought into it the Bonus Army marchers, Coxie's Army, so protest movements that lead up to or predate Occupy, but also homelessness. And so what I think she initially thought of as a deep cultural and environmental history of what we might call recreational camping ended up, in her own words, as sort of scrambled to really rethink what we mean by our engagement with the outdoors. And so I I just found it to be a really creative and and provocative understanding of why we find some camping okay and some camping not okay, which I know a lot of urban leaders have had to grapple with, given the soaring rates of homelessness. But I appreciated the way she tried to look back and integrate this as a, a lens through which you might think about American history. Dr. Schulten, I have truly enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time to to discuss this with me. No, this was an absolute delight. I knew when you wrote to me that I I really wanted to force myself to think in more uncomfortable ways, as you put it, about these questions, which I, I safely put in the past in my brain, you know, but they are live issues. We can't draw 
clear parallels from 1860 to 2022. While the country is extremely polarized, as it was in 1860, it's not obvious as to what the defining issue would be that distinguishes the parties from each other, much less that a pulsing red demarcation line exists on that issue between the parties, such as slavery was between the northern abolitionist states and the southern secessionist states. Further, the geography of the states that ideologically align today isn't so neat as it was in 1860, making it unclear as to what secession would look like, and perhaps most troublesome. Any number of things that we can't even predict could happen or emerge that alter the trajectory of a seemingly determined outcome. But it's in this final point that Dr. Shulton made, that history can surprise us, that I find some hope. It's not that all of our unknowns must end in doom. It's also possible, at least equally, that an unknown could mean a pleasant surprise, a calm instead of a storm. So I take that into the second part of this episode next week, when I do a deep dive into the current state of secession. I'm talking to Dr. Timothy Waters, a secession expert and professor of law at Indiana University, and Marcus Ruiz Evans, the leader of the Yes California, or CalExit, movement. In the meantime, as always, if you have any thoughts, questions, or comments, you can email me at deepdivewithshawn at gmail.com. And you can find me on Twitter at deepdivesean and on Instagram at deepdivewithshawn. Chat soon, folks.